All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksicles? What the fuckadelics? What the fucksters? All right, how are you? Mark Marin here. WTF is the name of the show. Welcome to it. Welcome to it. I'm in your head. I'm in your head right now. I'm plowing in. Tonight, as you listen to this, I'm on my way to Washington, D.C. I'm playing at the Warner Theater. If you are listening to this in D.C. and somehow or another you fucking didn't know that I was playing in D.C. and you're like, oh shit, I wonder if I can go to that. Yes, you can. There's some tickets left. Sold a good number of tickets. It's a big, big place for me. Like 1,600 or so. There's a few left. I'll just leave it at a few. That's vague. John Agnello is on the show. John Agnello is a uh, an amazing record producer, music producer. Done a lot of stuff. From Cindy Lauper to Dinosaur Jr., my friends. Kurt Vile, A lot of stuff. Friend of a friend hooked us up. Good guy. I'm excited about this. My buddy Matt Jabroni stopped by. He's got a book out. I'm not a terrorist, but I played one on TV. It's available wherever you get books. He's also uh, on WTF way back on episode 118. You can get the app, get the free app, upgrade to premium for a few bucks to hear the original Maz chap before he became the guy who writes a book. So Maz is coming up. Another thing I wanted to hip you to, I don't know if you're a Robert Williams fan. He's a painter. He's a, he's a great painter. He's a mind-blowing painter. He's a punch-you-in-the-face kind of painter. Changed my brain. Robert Williams. Well, there's an amazing show. The show is here in Los Angeles down at the uh, Barnsdale Park. That's right over in Los Feliz, man. It's in the gallery over there. You can go to lamag.org to get the info. It's Robert Williams Slang Aesthetics. And it's, 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 it's also got 20 years under the influence of Juxtapose, which is uh, also in the gallery. It's 20 years of Juxtapose magazine, which uh, Mr. Williams... Uh, created, helped create the cover for Appetite for Destruction by Guns N' Roses. That's a Robert Williams painting. But this is certainly the most of his work, sculptures, paintings, drawings, amassed under one roof ever. And uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up if you're in the L.A. area because it it just runs uh, through April 19th. And uh, it's worth seeing. Okay, it's over there at the the, uh, Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery, Barnsdale Park. So, uh, Check that out. I had some time uh, to talk to Robert Williams. I will be sharing that conversation with you soon. But right now, uh, let's uh, let's let's talk to Maz uh, to Maz Maz Jabrani. I actually remember having a conversation with you yeah. one of the first times I met you in New York, and I'd been working the store, and somehow the store came up, and you hadn't been going there for yeah. a while. Yeah. And and I was telling you, I was like, it's great. It's you got to come back, man. And I remember telling you that, yeah. and you were like, really? You think so? I was like, yeah. I was like, trust me, Mark. It's gotten better because when I first started, yeah. it was probably on the back end of what you'd experienced, right? Right. The crashing wave of that. oh my god. She used to she used to make people regulars based on them reminding her of a famous comedian. So she had a guy that reminded her of. Um, of Jim Carrey. There was a guy who reminded her of Richard Pryor. There was a guy. So these yeah. people weren't good themselves. Right. They just kind of looked like so that she was guy. losing it. Dude, it was crazy. I think, I think I don't know for whatever reason, if it wasn't so much she was losing, I think she was just like thinking, this guy's got something. She's got, he's got to find his Jim Carrey, his yeah. inner Jim. But he would <laughs> yeah. never find yeah. it. And it was one of these things where you would sit in the back of the room 
watching the guy and you're like, God, this is uncomfortable. And you would see the audience kind of looking at each other going like, what is this? Is this performance art or? Well, I think what's happening now too is that like, you know, it's just, um, we're excited to work there. Like it used to be like sort of like, we're just doing our sets, you know, yeah. and just trying to get some work done. Yeah. But now because whoever got that Twitter thing going, it's like, we're sort of like, yeah, we're going to be at the comedy store. And now we're seeing people who are like, I'm going to go to the comedy store. Yeah. Like that never happened before. Whoever got active on the Twitter, if yeah. it's, it is Brenton, I think is doing it. Yeah. He's diligent about it, and now all of a sudden you're like, "Yeah, I'll tell people." Like you didn't even fucking tell people. Would yeah. you ever tell people you're going to be at the comedy store? Not really, no. Right? Why? It's like yeah. I just want to hide out there and kind of do some work, and yeah. you know, it's kind of a weird place. And yeah. But now you're like, "Yeah, I'm going to be there," and people are like, "I'm fucking going the comedy store." Yeah, and it's funny. You're, the Twitter thing. You're right. Whenever I go home, I go to see what people are saying. Yeah. And they do a great job. Those pictures are great. Yeah. I don't I'm, even know who takes them. Yeah. I'm like, those are very frameable. I'm like, there's a little. I, I go, that, I look cool up there. <laughs> yeah. But I think that whole branding and just making it sort of accessible for a, like a new generation of people just to know that it's there yeah. and, and functional. Yeah. Do you know, like I just think a lot of people are like that place and I'm yeah. like, yeah, come check out the weirdness. Yeah. Now, but still like last night I was like, oh, it's got that creepy weird electric vibe. Like out back on busy nights, you're like, oh, what's going on out here? Yeah. Something weird's going to happen. Well, that's that, the other thing is that at the com at any given time in a, at the comedy store, you could be in a conversation with somebody you know yeah. and some weirdo will yeah, just come yeah, and yeah. stand. Just, yeah, some guy with you know, you know half a head of hair or <laughs> Some kind of weird outfit. Yeah. Some weird energy. Like, what's up? Yeah. Like, just, what? You don't know who they are. No. I was there. I I brought this 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 guy who's a friend, and he brought his dad, and yeah. the dad's you know they're English, so the yeah. dad was visiting from England. Yeah. He had no idea who was who. Yeah. So comics would come up, and I'd be like, oh, this is you know this is Al Madrigal, this is whatever, this yeah. is Steve Byrne, and introduce, and then this weird dude just came up and started hanging out. So the dad assumed he's one of my friends. Right. Next thing I know, this guy is basically taking the dad hostage in the conversation. Right. Just getting into it. And the yeah. dad was like, oh, that's great. You're doing it. And the guy's like, yeah, whatever. And then at one point, I tried to get him out of it. I go, hey, uh, let's go. You guys, we got to go watch uh, my buddy, Chris yeah. Spencer. Was like, hey, yeah. let's go watch Chris Spencer. And uh, I took the dad and the and the and my friend, and then this dude came with us. Oh god! And he's just hanging out. And I'm How like, many times have we had that moment at the comedy store? It's like I don't know that guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, that guy. I just don't know who that guy is. Yeah, yeah. So what? Okay, so when is the book out, buddy? I'm not a terrorist, but I've played one on TV. Memoirs of a Middle Eastern Funny Man. There you go. I'm excited and intimidated. Why? Because first of all, you know how it is. It's like it used to be if you went on one. TV show and you yeah. said I'm going to be at such sure. and such the whole world sees it right now now I feel like I'm advertising I got oh, yeah. billboards I got all kinds of calling people calling people yeah. and we tell everybody at the uh, at the place dude to come yeah and, and what's crazy is because the Persians a lot of them are like in Beverly Hills uh -huh. that area so the best advertising is when I go into like I go to like Beverly Drive to like go to like Pete's Coffee right and I run into Persians there <laughs> yeah and they're like when are you going to be performing <laughs> and I'm like I'm going to be at the Wiltern and here's what's funny is I don't think Persians go east <laughs> of right. maybe La Brea. Right. <laughs> Where? I know, I go, the Wiltern. Western. Yeah. Where? The what? I swear to God, I've had this so many, they go, wait a minute, Western? I'm like, you know Wilshire Bullet? Yes, I know Wilshire. <laughs> of course you know Wilshire, that runs into Westwood. Yeah. And then they go, and, but you gotta keep going east. And then they're like, okay, I figured it out. <laughs> it's the funniest thing, dude. So, but is that the same in San Francisco too, that there, there's Persian communities? San Francisco, it's like a, it's, it's more, probably just a liberal mix of, uh -huh. you know, like it's Persians, there's Arabs, and there's like white liberals. Right, you know, I, I'm I've been doing this uh, NPR show called Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. Sure, and that's listened to by a lot of like. No, I know that. You know, Wait, so you do that regularly? Or? Yeah, I'm a panelist. Oh, on really? It. Yeah. Has 
has that made a big change in the? It's interesting. I've had you know how it is, man. Yeah. I mean, we all have fans from different places. So when I'm at a show. Depending on who approaches me, right. I kind of know. Try to figure out which world. Yeah. yeah. You know, older white couple, I'm like, oh, here comes NPR. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, the Persians of the Persians. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's overdressed. Yeah, he's overdressed. <laughs> yeah. Every night is, you know, the opera. Yeah. Uh, and then a mink, mink. Why? Yeah. I thought mink coats yeah. were gone. In, yeah, in LA, a mink yeah. coat. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, and uh, and then I've got like my black audience from the movie. I did Friday After Next, which was the Ice Cube movie. Right. So I got they that. They come. As, they come. They come. Uh huh. And I, it's so funny. I could tell. Like if it's like some someone who's like either it's black or Latino. Distinct difference. Very different. Wow. Wait. Wait. Don't tell me. That's interesting. How long have you been doing that? You know, I started. I think my son was one and a half. So about four, or five years. What ago. Was that like three or four times a year? How's that happen? Maybe like now I'm doing it like ten times a year. Oh yeah. It's great. You fly into Chicago. Right. You know, I like that guy, Peter Sagal. Yeah. Yeah, he's a good guy. You'd be great if you're ever interested. I've I'm been sure a that. guest on the show. Yeah. I, well, that's the first time I did it. They had me as a call-in guest. Yeah. And then, and and it's funny because I, I used to listen to it once in a while driving back. I used to play soccer on Saturdays driving back. I remember I heard Sarah Silverman on there as the calling guest. Yeah. And I was like, God, I'd love to get in on this. Yeah. And then I just didn't think about it. And then I think that they started reaching out to get more comedians They on. heard your thought. They heard my thought, exactly. Yeah. No, but like they brought like, I think Alonzo Bowden started doing mm-hmm. it. I started doing it. So they were looking for, for other panelists. For panel. okay, yeah, because they were kind of maybe using the same people for a long time. Yeah. And oh, I, that's cool. Yeah. So now the book is really, where does it start? So the book starts, the title, uh, first of all, it's funny because um, the title, I'm not a terrorist, but I've played one on TV. Right. And then I put this picture of myself holding like a, uh, 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 like an Acme, like, yeah. uh, you old know. Style, uh, old style fuse bomb. Yeah. And you have a kafia. Yeah, the kafia, the whole yeah. thing, and a look of like, what the hell, how did I end up here, yeah. right? Right. And the whole point being like, how did I end up playing this part? Like, because actually I did, I played a terrorist in a Chuck Norris movie of the week. Right. And that's the story right there because it, it starts with um, I was uh, when I was first starting out. I was working in an ad agency. Uh, that was my day job, and yeah. I was looking for a way to get out. Yeah, I was like, if I get a gig that pays me enough that I could just get out of this day job, yeah. then I could be a full time actor, comedian. Right. And so I got this 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 thing to play a Chuck Norris movie, the uh, 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 an Afghan terrorist. Yeah. Who's in a Chuck Norris movie of the week who's going to blow up a building in Chicago. Right. And he's working for an Osama bin Laden type. Sure. And this was in 2001. Who played the Osama bin Laden type? Some white dude. Some white <laughs> yeah. dude with a beard. Yeah. And um, it was funny because it was right, it was earlier in 2001 before September 11th right. hit. So I thought to myself, I go, you know what? As much as I don't necessarily want to do this part, I go, listen, if I take this part, it's whatever it was, like six, $7,000. That helps. Because I was an assistant of the ad agency making nothing. Yeah. So I go, that'll go towards getting me out of here. Yeah. And I said, maybe I can show through my acting why this guy's doing what he's doing. Like, oh, yeah, bring a different element to it. The humanity. The humanity. <laughs> I'm going to go deep with this guy with the bomb. Exactly. Yeah. And because the thing is, you know, I'm sure, you know, like a lot of times actors write like their bio, like the backstory. Right. Of, it's not in the script, but here's my backstory. Sure. So my backstory was like, okay, the reason this guy wants to blow up a building in Chicago is because when he was a kid in Afghanistan, his parents were killed by bombs provided by the U.S., uh-huh. which right there the story's messed up anyway because the Russians were in Afghanistan. Right. So it's a messed up, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I go down to Dallas to film. This is where they were filming it. I show up, and the lady's like, here's your shirt, here's your pants, and here's your turban. Yeah. And I was like, oh. I go, no, you know, actually Afghans in America don't wear turbans. And I go, I want to get this right. Yeah. And she's like, well, no, they want you to wear a turban. 
I was like, no, but listen, we should really do this. And, and, and quickly, I'm realizing, you idiot. Yeah. You asshole. You're a this cartoon is, character. You're a cartoon character. This is a Chuck Norris movie. What are you talking about? And I get in an argument with the wardrobe lady, and I yeah. go, listen, do me a favor. You yeah. tell the producers, I've done my research. We want to get this right. <laughs> I'm like, let's get this right, you know? I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's worth turning. And it's so funny. She so goes, okay, I'll talk to the producers. So the next day, I come into the, tra- in the trailer, and there's shirt, there's a pants, and there's a scarf. Right. And I'm like, oh. Cool, I'll wear a scarf. Yeah. She's like, no, that's not a scarf. That's a turban. You got to actually wrap it around your head. <laughs> They'd unwrap the turban and just hung it there for me. I was like, are you serious? I go, what happened? She goes, I talked to them and they want the turban. And so I put this stupid turban on and I felt like an asshole. Yeah. And then I go on set. I swear to God, everyone, first of all, Chuck Norris's son, yeah. Eric Norris, yeah. was the director and he right. was younger. Right. So after we rehearsed with the turban, I go, hey, can I talk to you for a second? He's like, yeah. I go, listen, I shouldn't be wearing a turban. He goes, listen, man, I agree with you. And he goes, the problem is my uncle, who's the exec producer, Aaron Norris, he wants the turban. Right. So they were old school, the, the uncle and the dad. They were old school racists. Old school racists. <laughs> old school, like, listen, our audience needs to have you wear a turban. They so need they, to know the bad guy. Yeah, they know who the bad guy is. <laughs> so, yeah. so that was that story. And here's the irony of it is that, so I put this on the cover. Did you wear the turban? I wore the turban. It was stupid. I, I wore the turban. Did you get any feedback for that? Were there any Afghanis that were like, you know, not that we support what you were doing there, but we don't wear turbans. Yeah, no, it wasn't even that. It was, first of all, this was in 2001, right? right. So I actually got, it took a weird twist because, first of all, there, there was supposed to be a fight scene. So I thought maybe I could get the fight, Chuck, and there was no fight. They, they cut that out. He's like, I'll just shoot you. I was like, all right. And, and the funny thing was when it came to the shooting thing, they go, they had a guy on set yeah. looking like me in yeah. my outfit, head shaved. They, they brought a stuntman in yeah. to take the fall. And there was all these stuntmen there. Like, it was like total testosterone set. Yeah. But bef- right before they're about to shoot my scene, they come over, they go, hey, we got a stuntman, but uh, you want to do, th- do it yourself? Yeah. Like, they kind of put the pressure on. And, yeah. And like, I couldn't be a pussy. Come on, put- little man. Yeah, I, don't, I couldn't be a pussy. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Wait, yeah. What's it take? Like, yeah. I'll fall. Yeah. And then they go, okay, no problem. They go, hey, this, this is what it is. And there was like a guy, one of the stunt dudes had like been a Mossad agent or something. And right. Like, these guys were all like military karate. Right. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, okay, stand. Okay, he goes, listen, when somebody gets shot on screen, actors, an actor's instinct before you fall back, a lot of times actors, their instinct is to go forward before going back. He goes, don't go forward, just go back. I go, I got it. He goes, no, you, 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 you get it? I go, yeah. So he starts punching me in the shoulder. Yeah. Like to go back. He's yeah. like, just like that. I'm like, okay, ow. I'm like, take it yeah, easy. Yeah. He's like, let's do this. I'm like, let's do this. And they go, okay. They go, listen, by the way, we're going to have a pad, a pad behind you, a little, yeah. like, little pad. You just fall on that, you'll be fine. Yeah. Cool. They line up the shot, and then the DP goes, the pad's in the shot. They go, okay, get rid of the pad. I'm like, what? <laughs> now it's getting dangerous. They go, you can fall on the, on the, on the ground. I'm yeah. like, what are, you, what are you talking about? They go, but you got to make it look natural. I'm like, okay. And they go, bring in the pads. So they give me elbow pads. Yeah. Under, like, your, je- under your shirt? Under the shirt. Elbow yeah. pads, like a little back pad. Yeah. And they go, listen, what you want to do, when you go down, you're going to go, th- go tuck your head in. I go, okay, wait a minute. So I'm gonna I'm I'm running up. Chuck's gonna take a gun, shoot me. I gotta tuck my head, <laughs> fall backwards. I go. I think I got it. And they go. Make sure you tuck because if you don't tuck your head in, you're gonna hit your head back and you could crack your head. I'm like, oh Jesus. I go. Okay. 
<laughs> and then they give me like this fake machine gun, yeah. and they go, you're going to be holding this gun. They go, listen, this is a heavy gun. Whatever you do, make sure it doesn't land on your hand, or you could break the bones in the back of your hand. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> Get this dunk guy in here. I'm I'll like, be a pussy. Yeah, they started, they like, really like reeled you in, you know? It started so much easier, and now like now you're on the clock. Did they make you sign a release? I don't know what they made yeah. me do. Like Actually, I think afterwards I told my agents, they were like, we, we were supposed to get you a bump. You're not supposed to do that. Like You're supposed to get paid more. Mm-hmm. I was like, but I was being a man. <laughs> you know, it was horrible. So did you take the fall? I took the fall. I tucked my head in. I did the thing. I fall. I'm like, oh, this is going to look fucking great. The thing comes out. It's like less than a second. Like if right. if you blink, you wouldn't have known it was me. Right. It was some stupid shit. Like they told me, like I come running in and I go, Allo Akbar! And he goes, Ksh! I'm like, oh, and I die. That was it. That was it. And, and here's the, 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 the crazy turn of everything was, so we filmed this in early 2001. Yeah. Before it comes out, September 11th happens. So then I'm like, okay, these guys are not going to release this stupid movie. Right. Because it was, if you remember, like people were shooting Indian Sikhs. Yeah, I know. And I go, the last thing I need is for someone to see this, forget that they saw this and see me on the streets and be like, that's that fucking guy. Yeah. So I wrote a letter to uh, Chuck Norris's company, to Chuck Norris, as well as Les Moonves, because it was a CBS movie of the week. <laughs> right. I said, guys, it's yeah. a heated time. Yeah, Please, you, whatever yeah. you do, don't release this For movie. my safety. For my safety, the safety <laughs> of all the other terrorists in your movie. And it was funny, because then Chuck Norris came out on um, in the variety going like, I'm trying to, this movie has to come out, because the terrorists get what they deserve. Right. I'm like, no fucking way. So then I was freaking out. I really was. And then I lied. You were paranoid. I was paranoid. Yeah. I was like, someone's going to do something. So I sat down to watch the thing. Mark, it was the worst movie ever made. Yeah. Like, I l- literally, like, if I weren't in it, I wouldn't have waited till the, like, this my scene. Yeah. And I was like, no one's going to, like, I, 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 and, I, and jokingly, I said, I said, someone should shoot me not for being a terrorist, but for being in that movie. <laughs> Yeah. And so that was that. And and, and but, but what's funny about the cover now is I put this picture on the cover clearly kind of going like, how did I end up here? And I've had a few Persians and a few Arabs criticize me. Persians are, it's, the racism comes out. Some Persians go, why are you wearing Arab headgear? We're not Arabs. Yeah. This is not right. Yeah. And one lady was like, you've been writing this terrorist thing for a long time for your career. And I go, what are you talking about? She goes, we're not terrorists. And I go, and I first tried not to engage on yeah. Facebook. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to engage. Yeah. Then she started arguing with one of like one of my fans. Right. She was like, you're not getting it. Yeah. And then she's like, no, you're not. And I go, let me get into this. So I go, listen, I'm making fun of the thing. And by the way, you're saying we're not terrorists. I agree we're not terrorists. That's the whole point. But I go, Americans, unfortunately, see us all as brown. And we, they do see us as terrorists. She goes, well, we're not. Ter-. I go, uh, we had a hostage situation. Remember the hostage? I go, that was... That was that was an act of terrorism. I go, we we took Americans hostage, and she's like, that's water under the bridge. I'm like, what are you talking about? Argo won the best best uh, Academy Award two years ago. Yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. and she was like, whatever. And I and then I finally I go. By the way, I just want you to know, the more you write, uh, the more you write back, the more material you're giving me for my stand up. Right. And she just came back with, you're welcome. Oh yeah, of and course. it ended. Yeah. Well, what now? From those days, you know, from 2001, I mean, a lot has changed for you as a performer and as an actor as well. Yeah. So so you go through the whole arc. I mean, so like, obviously, the perception of Persians and or just lumping Persians in with brown people in general, some of that has changed. I imagine not a tremendous amount 
across the culture, but there there is sort of a, a respect and a differentiation. A little bit. You know, I always say it's like two steps forward, one step back, right? So it's like- so, Well, with the Persian thing, you got the double whammy of like, are you Iranian? No. Yeah, yeah. That's what, I mean, I, I used to do a joke about that, about yeah. how we don't say we're Iranian. We say we're Persian because it sounds nicer and friendlier. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, in all honesty, used it during the hostage crisis to just differentiate Separate them, themselves, yeah. yeah. To just confuse people and get away from like the 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 um, the, the hate, right? And uh, but but what happened career wise? I I did that. Then I did. Then I came back and I told my agents. I said no more terrorist parts. I really started feeling bad doing it. And then and then twenty four, the TV show twenty four, they go, we have a terrorist. And I go, no. And they go, well, he changes his mind halfway through the mission. I was like, oh, the ambivalent terrorist. I go, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I did that as well. Yeah. And then after that, I said, no more. I stopped doing it. And it's interesting, though. Throughout these years, I've played you know, cab drivers. I don't mind playing cab drivers. I don't mind playing like deli shop owners. I don't mind all those parts. Yeah. Um, I even just recently signed on, and I did. Uh, I played Jafar uh, from Aladdin. Yeah. Uh, they, they're, they're, Disney is doing something called Descendants, which is about the kids of the Disney villains. Mm-hmm. And I played Jafar in that. I don't mind playing Jafar. Yeah. This terrorist thing is what really bothers me. Yeah. And the problem is because we both know like 99.9999% of Middle Easterners and Muslims and Arabs and people from that part of the world are not terrorists. Right. And yet we constantly see those parts and it's constantly in the news because that's the shit that's going on. And they constantly down. make people afraid of those of you people. Constantly. You people. Constantly. I mean, when I see- No, and there's regular white people like, there's one of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, listen, Mark, it's funny because two things. First of all, when I see Bill Maher go like after the uh, Charlie Hebdo yeah. shootings and he's saying like something, he says something like, oh, probably he's like 100 million Muslims supported that, like the killing. And yeah. I go- what are you talking about? Because he looks at these statistics that say like 100 million Muslims have said that they would be offended by or, or it's okay to kill someone who offends the Prophet Muhammad or whatever. Yeah. Well, somebody broke it down for me. They go, the, a lot of this research that was done was research where they went and asked people who associate themselves as being radicals or fundamentalists. Right. And then they go out of those people, like 80% of those people have said, yes, it's okay to kill someone who offends the Prophet Muhammad. Right. So that's like going to like the Christian right, like the extremists, sure. like, and going like, is it, you know, it, is it okay to kill gays? And they go, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So it, you, when, you, when you do the research like that, then it's easy to go, oh, they're all like that. Right. But, but I've been to the Middle East. I just talked to a guy who lived in Egypt for four years. He's like, an American dude. He's like, I was there for four years. He goes, I didn't find a single jihadi. He's yeah. like, I he goes, people were cool doing their thing. Right. And it's funny because sometimes I think maybe I'm being paranoid. Maybe these people don't exist. But this happened to me over the holidays. Our uh, our neighbor's uh, black dad, white wife. My, yeah. my, kid, my, my kids are half Indian, half Iranian. My wife's Indian. And um, the neighbor had his cousin come, little six-year-old boy, came to visit, hanging out from Wisconsin, full white. Yeah. From Wisconsin. And I guess he probably doesn't have as much diversity around him. I took them to go see a movie. Yeah. And we're all in the bathroom washing our hands. An Indian Sikh walks in with a turban. Yeah. Washes his hands, walks out. The six-year-old turns to me. His jaw drops. He goes, that guy was ISIS. <laughs> oh, no. I go, what? He goes, the guy was ISIS. I go, what are you talking about? I go, the guy with a turban? He said, yeah. I go, no. I go, that guy. I go, he's Indian. This Indian Sikh. Yeah. I go, Dara, my boy is half Indian. And it's funny because my boy was confused. He's like, that's right. I was born in India. I go, you weren't born in India. Your mother's Indian. And I go, he's. Ha-, I go, that guy's Indian. And the whole movie, this Indian Sikh was sitting behind us. And yeah. every time we'd get up to go to the bathroom, this white kid from yeah. Wisconsin, he would turn and like his eyes would just go wide. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh my God. This kid 
whatever happened, what I mean, I'm not saying that his he parents- He saw part of the video. He saw part of a video. And that's he, like, those videos are scary. They are scary. And, you know, it's like headgear's headgear. Headgear's headgear. <laughs> you can't, he's always six. I know. That's terrible. It's crazy. But I mean, it's like, it's it's somewhat forgivable in a six-year-old. Of course. Because it's just like, all he's seeing is like this, the headgear. Yeah. Know? What is it? Yeah. Or like, or like the thing that happened like after the whole Charlie Hepto thing, Fox had some analysts on doing some thing and they were like, it's so funny because so one of these guys goes, yeah, there's no go zones in certain parts of England and in France mm. where even the police are afraid to go in because it's Muslim and Sharia law and blah, blah, blah. And... um the uh, um, Prime Minister of England, uh, he was. He, he said uh, there was a quote or a tweet where he goes, "I saw this," and he goes, "I, I spit my porridge out," because he was like, "What are you talking about? There's no no go zones. What are you talking about?" Right. But suddenly, everyone on Fox is going like, "See, Sharia law is happening. There's places where even English people will not go because it's so scary. The Muslims are. Gonna, it's like gang warfare. Right. There's none of that shit. Right. But people start believing that stuff." And and then the next thing you know, so that's why I, I really have a hard time now, like even going on audition. Like I don't I don't even accept auditions for terrorist parts. But those parts are continue to be written. But how do you feel like in terms of when you go out on the road and, and you know in outside of uh, Persians getting mad at you? Because I imagine their argument is is like you know not only is it not not uh, Persian headgear, it's Arab headgear, but you're sort of like uh, Uncle Tomming it somehow. Yeah, well, that's the point, though. The the point is, first of all, if they if they look at the material, they see the the act. Right. No, they yeah, right. It's very right. different. And and secondly, this book is trying to. For, it's a play on. Uh, you get it. A, a lot of people don't get it. It's a play on. The, I'm not a doctor, but I've played one on TV. Sure. And and it's. I think the story. There's a lot of self deprecation in there. There's a lot of like yeah. I made this mistake of playing these parts. So. I, I told actually I told a few of these people I said you're literally judging a book by its cover. Right. I go, you haven't even looked at and, it. And also I think like I think the important thing is is just even for someone like me to acknowledge that you know there's a Persian community. Yeah. You know, and the, the, there's a huge Persian community, and that like another thing that happens in America is that. We're all very separate. We know we're all living here. Yeah. But it's like, well, the Armenians are over in Glendale. Yeah. That, that's Armenian land. Yeah. And it's not racist, but it's just, you know, there's part of you that thinks, like, I'm not welcome there, really. I mean, right. we go. Yeah. Like, where do the Persian community hang out? But but I think that because, you know, you have this ability to, to sort of cross over and, and disarm a lot of that, I, I think it's great. I think it's, like, it's good for... To get out of the Persian community, even absolutely, <laughs> like you know, because because that's another thing that happens is when a culture uh, or an ethnicity you know settles here, they insulate themselves, yeah, and they you know they create their their neighborhoods and their stores, and it's just like like the Hasidic Jews. It's like yeah, where 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 do those guys work? Yeah, I don't know where they work. Yeah, and I don't want to be. It's funny. I run into those people. I ran into a guy like that yesterday. Very nice a guy at a la, at the Laugh Factory. Came to the show. Persian guy. Persian guy. Yeah. And after the show, he's like, um, if I wanted you to do a private show, can you do that? I go, uh, yeah. I mean, to get in touch with my agent. And he's like, can you do it in Farsi? And I go, no, I, I don't do it in Farsi. He's like, you should do jokes in Farsi. I'm like, I don't want to do jokes in Farsi. I go, my audiences are mixed. I grew up in America. There's a rhythm to it. You know right, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I always, I, the way I explain it to people, I go, it's like, I go, it's like somebody who's a jazz musician. And right. You're, you're saying play classical. Right. I right. can do it, but it's gonna sound shitty. You don't have the timing right. The timing isn't right. The, yeah. There's different. Listen, the Persians tell jokes. Yeah. They tell. There's a lot of regional jokes. Yeah. So like, whereas like we have like the Polacks are dumb and the. Yeah. Da, da, da. So for Persians, like the guys from the north, right. they're called uh, sure. Turkish. They're yeah. Turks. 
they're dumb and these people are like these people their wives so they have their them. own little racist horrible jokes all this yeah. stuff but it's like so this guy and that guy and his wife said this it's yeah. jokes yeah and and i love hearing them yeah but i'm not i'm not a joke teller right i'm a stand-up comedian yeah and i gotta talk about my life right and in talking about my life there's a lot of you don't uh, think in farsi i don't Why think in farsi yeah <laughs> but no but it's interesting because it's like first of all irony is not big in the community so if you say it's like, all very broad very broad but it's also yeah. very like literal as well yeah. so whereas like if you're watching a stand-up comedian yeah. who goes yeah so i was at the bar and it was 2 a.m and the lights came on and the only person and by that <laughs> point it was just me and this little asian boy yeah anyway i'm banging the asian boy right yeah you get that he's not banging the asian boy. right you do that in farsi yeah. they're like he fucked an asian boy <laughs> I'm like, what? Right, the the weird dark twist. Yeah. Does not read. They, it doesn't read. It's just another, the next part of the story. It, what is he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't exist in right. the culture. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's probably better off, actually. Yeah. You can't, you know, you don't do any, you know, questionable jokes along those lines. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to do a punchline in Farsi. I've seen young guys do or that. Or roll your eyes. Or yeah. Do yeah, I've seen young guys do that. And I go, listen, dude, I, I'll tell them. I go, listen, you just isolated like because they'll do it at like the regular clubs I could, you just but I think isolate. it's really weird it's a very organic way of like you know because i think it does make a big difference to to somebody to do not you know just to to see a persian person or uh you know even if you identify as iranian that you, you know it's like for a white guy from the middle midwest who might never never see a, a persian guy right like oh, that guy's just a guy Absolutely. It's a big difference. And that's why, like, with my act, I try as much as I can. Um, first of all, like, whenever I talk about Iranians or my own background, yeah. my parents, I, I throw in the word immigrant parents. Because right. Right, right there, I think a lot of people at here. these shows- The immigrant here. The immigrant here. Yeah. So I think a lot of people that had parents that are immigrants or grandparents, they right. associate. So whether you're Russian or you're, you know- Right, the experience is the same. It's very similar. You constantly have to separate yourself from the terrorist. Absolutely. Like that's the whole agenda now. Yeah, and we, and but but the idea is though, it's like, look, we had the same experiences. Your parents, like your right. parents didn't get it the same right. way my parents didn't get it. Right. And so I like to do material like that and I re reference, reference it as immigrant. And then the other stuff I've been doing, because I got kids, I do a lot of kid material. Yeah. So ultimately, like you said, if some guy comes from the Midwest has never seen an Iranian, right. I think they can walk out going like, oh yeah, I had, you know, I knew what he's talking about with the kids. Yeah. Oh yeah, whatever. The, sure. You know, sure. whether it's like black comedians or like, Latino comedians or whatever, you don't want to isolate so much where that guy from the Midwest feels, feels like, alienated. Yeah, yeah, feels alienated. Yeah. Well, good, man. Well, I hope I wish you best of luck with the book. Thanks, man. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Thanks for hey. having me. Yeah, man. All right, Mark. Maz. Very nice fellow. Straight up dude. Funny guy. So, uh,. I wanted to talk to somebody, another person. I haven't really talked to too many music producers. John Agnello comes highly recommended as one of the sweetest and most talented guys working in that area. I tweeted that he was going to be on the show tomorrow. Fucking Jason Isbell just uh, said good guy and retweeted that shit. Musicians love this dude, and that's saying a lot for a guy on the other side of the business. So uh, let's talk now to John Agnello. Well, you've done a fucking million records. I've never talked to a to a hands-on kind of producer guy. Right. You're the first guy, like uh, that I talked to. Like um, I talked to John Cale. Right. 
But uh, but you know I don't know where do you start with that guy you know he and then when I asked him about you know the, the big records like the Stooges like yeah they were all set I didn't have to do anything I'm like, I mean a lot of those guys are like just big picture guys and yeah. they're they're vibe guys they're there just to inspire and you yeah. know so oh, to add to the vibe so him well, sitting there in a cape with a cat or whatever the yeah. hell he did in his Dracula outfit that right. was like to create ambiance for the well, for the fellas no I'm sure he added you know to it but the point is like there's there's probably another guy in the room who's really doing a lot of the work also you know i've been the engineer for a lot of producers who are musicians and it sometimes ends up being more collaborative anyway yeah but well, where'd you start man let's go back because i mean you've got sort of a rich history in the in music you grew up where i grew up in bensonhurst brooklyn oh in, yeah okay yeah so in the before uh, brooklyn was hip this Bensonhurst was never hip. Yeah. I mean, Bensonhurst was literally the land of Saturday Night Fever. Right. You know. So you so, grew up in that. Oh yeah, I, I grew up a hippie. Yeah. In an immigrant Italian family, and me and my hippie friends were the fastest hippies in the world because we spent all our teenage years being chased by Guidos. Yeah. Like we got shit kickings all the time. Like wait, how old are you? I'm 55. So I grew right, up. So, so I grew up in the 70s. Yeah, a little older. A little older than me, but right. we missed the 60s. So you sort of like the crashing yeah. wave of the '60s, and the fashion was there, right. and the music was left. Right. right. But but it wasn't. We weren't '69. Well, know. like I have an older brother who's 10, oh, 10 years older than me. That so, helped. So, and he and he, when he hears this, he'll be annoyed that I say. But he was literally a hippie. Yeah. He and but he was wonderful. A smart guy went to CCNY and was an electrical engineer. And I could probably say that the reason, one of the main reasons I got into music was because of him. And definitely one of the reasons I got into recording was because of him. He, Isn't that amazing? The older brother power. Or the, you yeah. need that guy, that yeah. guy to sort of like yeah. go, oh, this is what's good. Yeah. And yeah. What, was, what, what did he lay down on? What did he lay well, on you? he worked for a company called Eventide that made recording gear uh-huh. for studios. Right. And now they do pedals and they do a bunch of stuff. And he's come full circle. Now he runs the company. Oh, really? Yeah. And, so he's been there that long. Well, he left to start his own company and he was away for like 10 years. Yeah. And then... Um, he basically got out of the company and then went back to Eventide and, and continued. And because he had long tenured, when the owner uh, retired, he took over the company. Right. He's really, he's the best. But um, so when I was a kid in high school, my summer job was working at Eventide. And I put together delay lines and flangers and all kinds of cool Flangers. Shit. Yay. Back when they were like single rack mount and big and everything was big back yeah, then. Yeah, nothing, yeah. Was, yeah. nothing was small. But um. So I did that summer job, and as a 16-year-old working all summer, I made enough money to buy, you know, my own kick-ass stereo. Yeah. So I was the only kid on my block. Do you remember who, what it was? Uh, Pioneer 737 yeah. uh, was the receiver, uh-huh. and I had two AR speakers. But but anyway, point being, so I'm a kid, now I'm a hippie kid with a really bitchin' stereo, like blowing up my neighbors in yeah. Brooklyn yeah. and uh, in the world of Saturday Night Fever, and, you know, kind of working at Eventide. Eventide has a recording studio above it called Sound Exchange. So every now and then I peek up there and look at sessions and be like, wow, this is cool. Yeah. Uh, end up going to college. And Who were in those sessions? Anybody? It was nobody. It was not like a famous studio. It was just a, you know. And what music were you listening to? What was your brother listening to? Um, well, you know, he ushered me through the Beatles, the Stones, and a lot of garage rock. Yeah. Um, and then I have a middle brother who ushered me into Alice Cooper and a lot of that stuff. And then... I got full training. Yeah, it was crazy. But were you crazy. going to like uh, the, were you going into the city to see bands and shit with your brother? Um, they, my older brother, the first concert he took me to was uh, the Joni Mitchell Court and Spark tour, mm. 
which was pretty. I know, uh, well, but but you know they were hip. You know that was cool. But that you know. No, I know, uh, I know. I, you know, it's like I I respect Joni Mitchell. I I think she's amazing. Can't listen to it really. I, I okay. try. I I mean, I listened recently because I saw this uh, rough cut of a Jaco Pastorius documentary. Well, okay. Yeah. And uh, I was like, I'm gonna go check that shit out again. I couldn't get. I couldn't. Still, I couldn't do it. Couldn't yeah. do the whole thing. Love well, her though. Yeah. I no mean, disrespect. Not, not a huge fan of the later jazz. Yeah, so much, but I, you know, for in that time, and I still go, still go back and listen to Blue and For the Roses, and they're just beautiful records. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're 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 they they are what they are, but they're certainly beautiful. So you but, go see Joni, yeah, but then I go see the Kinks with them, and then yeah. I go see Sparks with them. Sparks, I see. Yeah. I never got. I don't know about them. Are they they're, great? They're great. They're really wacky pop, but super wacky. They're kind of a cross between a pop band and Queen. Okay, they ushered me, and then I just became a, a you know a show rat. I mean, I went to like every show like the summer we'd go to shows every what night. years with this uh i would say 77 through 80 76 so punk's 80. over yeah i was like i missed the whole punk thing like i never like no tats no no you know no piercings it was like i no kind of cbgb's i went to cbgb's to see certain shows i saw you know patty smith there um but i didn't I didn't. I wasn't a punk. Yeah. You know what I mean. I just yeah. wasn't. I right. was like, you know, I was actually a prog rock kid, which which they hated anyway. So yeah. I was better off not going there. You know, I was like Pink Floyd, Genesis, yes, uh, oh, really boy. into Todd Rundgren, really into um, um, Gentle Giant to get really more obscure Nectar, which was really obscure. You like that math rock, huh? My thing is like, I think everybody has a bunch of music they listen to as a kid that when they reflect on it, yeah, it's like oof, yeah, you know, eesh. I like, don't. I, I guess I have some of that, but some of it I still listen to. Like I went back and replaced right. a lot. Of, I mean, right. like I got all the Skinner records. Right. I do. Right. And I don't. That's just growing up in America. It's right. Not like right. in the right. like a towny rock was like right. that was part of my past. I can't really do uh, Bob Seger. I wouldn't yeah, go out of my way. I couldn't yeah. do like Foreigner that came out when I was in high school. I'm, you know, I don't need it. I don't need to pick that stuff back up again. That, that's one of the things that I go back and go. You know, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't do it. Yeah. And some of the mixes on that stuff was just, you know, is it, it was oh, like that when the, the big production keyboards I don't love. They don't, yeah. I don't synthesizers. Yeah. if not done well. I don't. So I'm, I'm more pro synth than I used to be, but right. uh, but but not not generally speaking. So you're not a big fan of the synth saxophone dueling solo you don't oh that man that just that just put me to sleep yeah i just went to sleep for like three seconds in the middle of you saying synth saxophone dual solo i took a nap <laughs> so all right so when do you start getting involved with uh with being a guy behind the uh, board there well i mean i guess it was i i ended up going to brooklyn college for two years yeah uh sociology anthropology major start start aiming that way my second year so yeah, uh, I, aimlessly aiming your way into yeah, anthropology in, and sociology. In, no, into music basically. Oh, okay, that's that's what I, what I was doing. So, but by my second year, I my grade point average had dropped from you know three point seven to like two point six, and I was like, you know, I just wasn't into it. Right. So my brother got me an interview at a studio, and I was still working at at Eventide, you yeah. know, on off hours and building sometimes flangers, building whatever they you know whatever they sold, but um. But literally, my brother got me an interview at the Record Plant Studios in New York, uh, which was the in famous record, the plant. famous Record Plant. And um, the studio manager was like, um, you know, if you're anything like your brother, you'll be fine. And uh, they hired me on the spot. No, they didn't ask you like, do you know what this knob is? No, I didn't and know you're... shit. I it was crazy. It it was also back in the day where there weren't um, recording schools, so you kind of learned from the ground. They built you up. 
You know what I mean? Who Matt, was the manager then? Anybody that uh, we know? Probably not. His name was Paul Sloman. Now, like the the record plant, like had been around for years before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, they opened up in like the late '60s, right? Right, right, right. And they and and Hendrix recorded Electric Ladyland. Well, that's that the thing. Was... They were building Electric Ladyland, but they didn't finish it in time, so he did it at the record plant. Okay. Yeah, because they ended up building it on Eighth Street in Manhattan. In you know, in the, the studio. Yeah, the studio. So, oh, so that was that was gonna be Jimmy's studio. It, that was his studio. And they finished at the record plant, but there were some other big names in there too. Right. I mean, John Lennon did a bunch of shit there, you know. Before Kiss, you got there. Yeah, Kiss did a bunch of shit. That was the studio where Springsteen and Patty wrote Because the Night Together. Really? Yeah, Springsteen was in B doing, wait, Springsteen was in A doing Darkness, and Patty was in B doing, I want to say Wave, but maybe not that, that's not the name of the record. But Bruce had the song, he had the music, uh, he couldn't finish it, he had yeah. a roadblock, he, yeah. he gave it to Patty. She wrote the lyrics and he said, yeah, just fucking take it. And it became like her song. It was like, <laughs> and if you watch the Darkness yeah. uh, uh, documentary, yeah. which is about the year and a half it took him to make Darkness on the Edge of Town, yeah. it's actually called The Promise. Um, he talks about it yeah. and it's really amazing. But th so there was so much great shit going on there. Um, Do you believe in magic spaces? Um, I believe spaces can be magical, but I think with without the right ingredients, it's just a space. It's just a space. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the people who made the records and the artists back then, and just the and the environment was just so off the map, incredibly crazy. Yeah. That of course you had amazing things happening. Like how so? Like what do you mean crazy? Just because there were so many people recording there at any yeah. given time? You know, you, you got you you, you know. You got uh, Phil Spector waving his gun around. At the record plant? I think it was at the record plant where he did that. But but he did stuff there. And, you know, you just basically had guys who were almost feral and unemployable in any other way of life making Musicians. records. <laughs> um, no, producers and engineers more. Well, and maybe all of them. I don't even know. I can't. Right. I just, and but these guys were obviously the top-notch dudes. You know, yeah. back then, if you worked at the record plant, you were a great engineer. Right. I mean, you know, Jimmy Iovine came through the record plant. He just made a fortune, didn't he? He did pretty good for himself. But didn't he just partner up with Dre on Yeah, the... yeah, on the Beats and the Apple and all that. He, yeah. uh, but, he but he was a producer before that, right? He, he did. was an assistant. Yeah. He became an engineer. Was he there when you were there? No. Oh, uh, well, yeah, he was. I mean, he started way before. I... When I when right before I busted into assisting, I did this function for certain sessions called I was a second assistant, which meant I was a glorified runner. Right. But I'd hang around, and when you know somebody needed a bottle of wine, I ran down the block and got it. Somebody who's somebody. Wh whoever the artist or the producer. <laughs> was it? Where'd you draw the line at? What you brought back? Oh uh, no, it was never like drugs. Oh, we, yeah. we, we didn't do like it was all legal. They had to bring their own drugs. Back then they had. Yeah, guys. They had a guy. They had a guy. A, a guy it. or two. Yeah, the yeah. guy on the couch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our buddy. Yeah, but but I a second assisted on a meatloaf record, mm -hmm. um, where Jimmy was producing. And yeah. it was just a mix phase. Yeah, but you know, I he got to know me, and he was from Brooklyn, and he was Italian, and yeah. you know, his mom used to cook him dinner like twenty four seven whenever he got home, and yeah. I had the same thing, and he kind of took a little bit of a liking to me because I was almost like a mini him but super fucking nervous yeah and um that was kind of a little bit of my dealing with him he was fucking awesome and he you know he was a real what was his what were his big uh records well I mean the one that I remember they did partially there uh you know he did damn the torpedoes he produced uh, that yeah, he yeah. produced a bunch of Stevie Nicks shit uh he did a great motors record he did, you know, he b worked on a bunch of Springsteen stuff. Right, I mean, right. he engineered um, um, Darkness in the Edge of Town. 
which was amazing. It's a great record, huh? You know, it just it was amazing. But I wasn't there f- for that phase. I started '79 and was thrust into this thing of really not even getting in a control room for like two or three years. It was like I was like a tape librarian. Yeah. You know, back in the old days of tape. And if you um, if you see the Promise documentary, there is like a montage in the beginning, all these different shots, and there's a shot of mountains of two inch tape. Yeah. And I swear I saw the number 178. So. And I remember how we logged them in then. Yeah. And there was that's how ma- there were at least 178 reels of tape they recorded on. Oh my god. That's a lot of fucking tape. Yeah. It's it's weird. Just the storage issue of yeah. analog. Is oh yeah. Yeah. Profound. Profound. Yeah. Well, what we would do is after a while when the record came out, we would get the record company to take them. So that. They but okay, would go. so you're sitting there. You're okay. You're a kid, and you're you're a tape librarian. Now, how does one? Like if you're up in that number of 178 reels, and like like any given song could have you know multiple reels of tape, how do you catalog what's good and what's bad, and how do you what is the process of? I mean, I have to assume not unlike when people had to use a typewriter, right? That that at some point you're like, uh, it's going to have to be that way, right? Like there's right. not this like there's not this infinite cutting and pasting and and right. and dubbing and everything else. Right. Like at some point you're like, I think number 80 was the one, right? Is that how it worked? Well. For me, the tape library, and all I had to do was notate what, like on these little cards, yeah. what was on each reel. Um, the assistant engineer was in charge of making sure they knew what the master take was. You know, and on the ul- tape. Yeah, but ultimately, when you got a master take, you would take it off of reel 140 and yeah. put it on what you called a master reel. So okay. you would end up with like four or five master reels of takes. So what's a master take versus whatever else is on that reel? The master take is the take that is the one that you, is going to be the record. Okay. You know, like what, what, like if you know Jimmy says that's the take, and it's like take you know 130, you know. I, the assistant would write it down, and yeah. then at the end of the night, he'd pull that off onto its own reel. So you'd know there'd be like you know 180 reels of outtakes, right? And um, you know five or so. Six sometimes reels. the master take would be buried, buried, or was it usually the last take? Um, you don't. Know. You, you never know, right? It could be the first take. Yeah, that's. that's but but that, they just keep doing it over and over again, yeah, just because. Is yeah. it like well, maybe, we're you know we're talking about Springsteen, so I mean he did spend a year and a half making the record. So I mean obviously they did things a lot. You know what I mean? Oh my God! It's just it's hard work, right? I mean, a lot of times if stuff like for me, if I like to use the headphones to like manipulate the take, yeah. You know, if you're kind of not like in, if you're playing like behind or ahead, I'll maybe goose the drums up, and so you can hear more of the rhythm. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because right. maybe it's something like that, or maybe the vocals throwing you off because it's a reference vocal and it's not really in time, right? So there, are, I mean, there are different ways of doing it, you know, just to make someone comfortable, or you can have them sit in the control room. Sometimes the control room's a little more fun because you're just sitting there listening. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, so you're a tape librarian for right. three years? Two years, yeah. I mean, something like that. It, it was, But it, you're it, watching, right? You're watching the well, knobs. After a year, they let you in the control room like as a... Well, what they do is it's a ladder, you know? So the assistants eventually, if they don't get fired or have nervous breakdowns, or or you know or whatever if they get good enough they become engineers at one point uh-huh. so then that's when a tape library and if he doesn't have a nervous breakdown or just run out of the building screaming <laughs> they he becomes an assistant yeah and usually they meant you know the guys right above you mentor you and what would happen is and this is like i said it's way different from how things are now because right. you know everybody comes out of school a producer an engineer i'm not like or they're doing it at home or they're doing it at home right yeah and i'm not you know i'm not saying I'm no judge i'm just saying this is how the difference um, so as I got a little more comfortable in, in the place, assistant engineers would then be given free time on the weekends to bring bands in and learn how to engineer. 
they can well, bring their own friends in or whatever yeah, for like a day yeah for nothing it just yeah. you know and then but in turn they had to bring me as a tape librarian in to be the assistant and they had to teach me how to assist so i would work five days a week being a tape librarian and yeah. then ultimately work like every weekend where an engineer would bring some of his buddies in where his big yeah. idea these guys are going to be yeah. big and then as i was an assistant i did the same thing where i just had a bunch of friends in brooklyn who had cool bands and i was like well, I get a free day yeah and then i'd have to train this fucking kid who was under me to like <laughs> teach him how to edit and all this bullshit you know so this was the this was the record plant system it was yeah it was but it worked great i mean they generated a bunch of really good people you know a real good group of engineers i mean the, the the list of people who come out of there are really pretty phenomenal so what was the first one that you were actually working on the first record i worked on uh i assisted on um was a guy named ellison chase for columbia that the record never came out it was just one of those things that it just didn't happen didn't happen for that guy right didn't happen for got that right guy. to the edge right but the good news about that record was I got hooked up with a team of a producer and an engineer, and both guys ended up being very significant in my life. The producer was Rick Chertoff, and the engineer was uh, Bill Whitman. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, we went on to do, uh, they went on, I was the assistant, they went on to do the first Cindy Lauper record. That was huge. That was pretty fucking crazy. She was something, huh? Uh, she was incredible, and- She's still pretty good. Yeah, we. I just saw her. Like, I took my kid. I his full circle. I take my kid who loves that record, who at that point was seven, to see her in some state theater in New Jersey, and she was fucking awesome. Yeah, you know, and she was super gracious after the show. She like gave my kid a hug. She signed her like tour laminate. You know, whatever. She remember you? Oh, dude, she was so funny. I was like, you know, it was like twelve thirty, and I was trying to get the kid home. Yeah, and I was trying to do the Irish exit. Yeah, and we got down the hall, and I hear John. Yeah. I'm like, are you leaving? And I was like, I had to go up and give her a hug and yeah, say, congratulations, yeah. I got to get the kid home. I'm going to get my ass kicked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, she's really wonderful but and unusual. And, but when, what's the, what was the difference? Because so, that was before CD, right? Uh, that, I think, was right around the CD time. Now, was that like some sort of a, in, insane shift in the way everyone thought about things in the yeah. studio? Uh, I mean, it was more like the production thing. Because it was, but I guess CD didn't, I mean, the technology, digital technology was not in the studios no, completely no, yet. You no, were still it was, doing it was analog. just a production, yeah. That's right. Because you okay. made your records analog, but. Um, right. I mean, the real shift in CDs um, was for the record companies because they were able to take all their back catalog and spend virtually no money remastering for CD and then everything they made was overhead. Right. So that caused this whole boom of just money but some of those first cds were remastered poorly right i mean some of the first cds and i think i think if i remember correctly the who catalog specifically caught my attention w what happened was when they went back to do a lot of these old records they didn't always find the right master tapes they'd find like safety copies which were copies and a generation right. down but they also did these things where they used to be Dolby masters and you need to encode and decode the Dolby. Right. But a lot, on a lot of these early CDs, they didn't realize they had to do that. So they just took a Dolby master and didn't put it through a Dolby machine and mastered through that. So it sounded muffled? It sounded mu just bad. Yeah, yeah, muffled and low. Yeah. I mean, it took a while for them. And that's why they ended up doing a lot of the remastering is because like a lot of people realized this sounds like shit. What's, yeah. you know, what's How going that on? happened? Yeah. So, yeah. What, what the fuck is Dolby? Dolby is this noise reduction unit that when people started getting tweaky about tape hiss, yeah. they decided we're going to put this thing, and the same thing on cassettes and shit. I don't know if you remember, like yeah. my, my cassette deck had a Dolby button. Yeah, yeah, had Dolby But button. you had to put the fucking Dolby in, and 
it was just this thing where, you know, instead of not worrying about fucking a little tape noise, you know, they... I never liked it. Well, it, it took top end off. Yeah, it took the high I mean, end off. That's, I, like I mean, his is top end. I mean, so it would roll off the top. So, I like yeah. treble. I like... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> treble... You know, Jay says treble is excitement. <laughs> Jay Maskus? Yeah. All right, so you do Cindy Lauper, and then when do you... What's your first... What's your first... Uh, what's the first one you produce? Like, who else did well, you work with? So... It was, it was, and once again, getting back yeah. to the record plant pecking order, as I was there long enough, I became the, um, I guess, the head assistant. I yeah. was the, the most tenure guy. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting all the good gigs. Um, so, you know, I worked on the Cindy record early on, but then I worked on like Iggy Pop Party record. I worked, you did? Yeah. Yeah, that was a trip. That's a good record. It's a great record, but I, that was a trip. Like, how many people used to, who did he travel with? Like, what he was didn't it? travel with a million people. It was, he really... Was he was just full on Iggy? You yeah, know, it was it was really amazing. And um, who was the band? Who was the band on that? Um, one? we did overdubs. So yeah. it was overdubs and mixing. So right. I didn't even know who was on the band at that point. I think, but I think Ivan Crowell from Patti Smith played guitar on it. Yeah. So really, so you just be in there with Iggy singing the tape? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. He so... did this crazy thing. It was so. Um, the record was produced by two different people: a staff engineer guy named Tom Panunzio. Uh, a lot produced, of Italians in this racket. Well, record, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Roy Sacala, you know, Tom Panunzio, Jimmy Iovine, yeah. Jay Messina. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. a lot of... Jews and Italians. Right, Jews and Italians. Yeah. Right. But, um, well, the, the I guess the non-cuisine Italians went into recording. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> the other guys went into construction. I don't even fucking know. <laughs> I don't know how it yeah. works. Um, but, so, so literally, uh, uh, basically, it, the Iggy record was produced, part of it was produced by Tom, and the other part was produced by Tommy Boyce, who was half of the team that did all the Monkees records. Really? Yeah, and he was like an English jolly guy, and he'd yeah. call everybody darling, yeah. and just really be very, you know, he's a very funny guy, wonderful. Um, As but, an engineer, do you have these guys on your back, you know, telling well, you? Well, once again, I'm the assistant, so I have everybody on my back, you know. <laughs> right. Literally at one point, and this is no exaggeration, Iggy's out there doing vocals, and that was back in the old days when the assistant would do all the headphone mixes and stuff like that. we have to run the tape machine. It was like really, assistants were very busy. What do you mean headphone mixes? Well, like whatever you have running through your headphones, right. you have to dial in certain, you know, more guitar, more bass. Or, okay. Because they have to hear With well to sing. Yeah. yeah. And reverb and stuff. Yeah. So at one point, I got my head down, and I'm getting a headphone mix in the console, and the engineer taps me on the shoulder, and I'm like, wow, and he points. And I look out into the studio, and there's this towel over the music stand so it doesn't reflect into the microphone because the music stands are metal. Right. And Iggy's lit on fire. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And there are, like, sprinklers in the fucking ceiling. It's a yeah. major building in yeah. fucking Manhattan. Yeah. Um, so I bust the move out there, and I grabbed the thing, burned my hand, and do like this hat dance on yeah, the thing yeah. and put it out. And it was just like, all right, let's go back to work. What, how did he set it on fire? With a fucking lighter. On purpose? He just did it. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't want to ask him. I, you know, I'm like 22 years old. He's Iggy Pop. Yeah, I'm going to say, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, why question his process? Yeah, exactly. I guess yeah. this is something he has to do. Yeah, a, what's your motivation? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but I did, that was, you know, that's what I say it was kind of like a little like the Wild West back yeah. then, when everybody was a little fucking nutty. And we, you know, you just, had to do you know did you see a lot of drugs yeah i saw a lot of fucking drugs yeah i <laughs> yeah. saw enough drugs to know that like after 1984 85 like i was like so over the drug thing and like all my friends back in brooklyn were starting to get into the drugs and i was just like bah, yeah leave yeah, me alone yeah. you never got fucked up though uh i mean we there were always inadvertent issues and things that happened like, if you made one bad decision, you would do a line of something that you thought was cocaine and it was heroin. Right. And that was a bummer. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> it's a pukey bummer. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then you know, not a lot of work after that. that yeah. for that day, there was another issue at one point where, when someone offered me a pill because I was too stressed out, I probably shouldn't have taken it because yeah. I took it and woke up like six hours later, laying on the bathroom floor at like eight o'clock in the morning on a Monday, and had to go home to my parents' house. Uh, so you don't know what it was. Uh, it was probably a two and all, yeah, but whatever. Yeah. But the, you know, but apart from that, I mean, once again, I was wor- we were working, so you really had to work. You know what I mean? Uh, the bands partied more right and you know um and a lot i mean you know bands would spell their names in cocaine yeah you know and just everybody would do a letter the thing is like you know i did coke i I haven't done anything in a long time but like you know by day two or three you're kind of you know you're fucked yeah so they do more coke yeah but it's like (laughs) you must have just seen people just Uh, wear down like i mean i can't imagine this well there's some theories about certain sounds of the uh of the 80s in production i hear that yeah you think that it had was driven by coke well rock in a hard place is all symbols (laughs) i mean it's you listen to the record it's like (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) Um, and, the, and the cocaine and, symbols, and then literally those some of those days were like thirty hours, and people were exhausted. But you know, someone would be playing on a pump organ, a part that would be the lowest thing in the mix, and they'd work on it for like five hours, and yeah. you would just be like, you'd want to blow your brains out, but you had to do it. <laughs> you had to sit yeah. on those knobs, huh? Yeah. 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 So all right, so okay, so you're doing this assistant engineering, but when do you take the helm? Um, well, post the Cindy record, yeah. Um, Two of the backing band were the uh, two members of a band called the Hooters from Philadelphia. Yeah. So the Cindy record went so well that my engineering mentor, Bill Whitman, became a producer himself. Yeah. And then Rick, who was like my product, one of my production mentors, he needed an engineer, and it's the same thing. It was the latter. I just filled into the slot yeah. to engineer for Rick, and we did a Hooters record together. And the that first was a- one. Yeah, yeah, most most of the first one. I was on half of the first one. Bill left halfway through. But so they kind of were big for a minute, and didn't... yeah, they, they, that first record did really well for them. I think it probably went platinum. I, you know, yeah. they, that song "And We Dance" was kind of um, yeah, it was, was a hit. I, yeah, but um, but so I, I ended up engineering from ni- that point, which was 1983, 1984, and kind of never looked back. And you right. know, or looked back a bunch, but it didn't fucking matter. So and what so like when it says like I'm looking at your website and you've you've got it coded. Like, what's the difference between recorded, mixed, and, and like, yeah, what's the okay. difference? So recording is basically the band's playing, and I'm putting it to tape or to digital. But they're literally playing. Um, You're not on the knobs, or you are? I'm on the knobs, yeah, I'm on the knobs, and I'm talking, you know, talking to them, you know, can you turn it up, can you turn it down? Yeah. You know, the producer's probably hitting the button saying, hey, you know, you're rushing, or, you know, a little more feeling, or a little less feeling. Yeah, what or- is that breakdown? So if you're recording it, you, that means you have an, an engineer. If you're just a producer, yeah, um, I, I want to use Jay as an example, but I mm, you did a yeah, lot of work. Yeah, with okay. Mascus, so here's right? here's okay. I'll give you a perfect example. So Jay produces a breeder's seven inch, okay, um, and I'm the engineer. Okay, so I literally get the sounds of all the instruments. Yeah, and he listens and he's like, you know, can you put more something on the snare? Yeah, yeah. And I make him happy and I put more something on the snare. And you know, adjust the guitar tones, and then we start recording. And I basically make sure everything's going to tape and sounds good. Um, and he makes sure that he likes what they're playing, and maybe he'll suggest them change a part or a drum right. beat or add a fill. So it's he's more con he's more musical content, and I'm more like sound content. Right. Um, so that's producing and recording, um, and mixing. When you're done recording everything, it's like cooking. You know, you have all these fucking ingredients. So now you've got to make 
the final product, which ends up being the record that you hopefully buy. Well, relative to um, what he says, like if he says more snare, more this, more that, is that once you get into mixing, you can alter that again, yes, right? Yes. So yes. then you, you know you've got your master, and then right. you're like, yeah, maybe I was wrong about the snare. Right. Take that back down. My thing, maybe I wasn't specific enough. My thing is, he would probably ask me to maybe make the snare brighter mm -hmm. or fatter, mm -hmm. or you know, add more room to it. Or right. you so know, it's not a level thing, right? It doesn't have to be a level. And a lot of times, what you do is you do this stuff, and then you just mix section by section. Yeah. Because there was so many changes, you couldn't you couldn't do it all. So you'd mix a verse, and a lot of the Cindy Lauper record is mixed like that. You mix a verse, you get it right, you listen. All right, let's mix the chorus. You cut that together. That sounds great. All right, let's do the second verse. Let's go back to all the verse settings. Oh my god! Yeah, no, it was a real process. It was pretty intense. No wonder some bands have such a hard time, like you know, recreating, you know, yeah. what they do, you know, for right. live music. Right. Like, there's no way you can no. you do that stuff. Also, back then, yeah, I mean, you think you'd be limited by tracks, but what ends up happening is, you know, you have drums on four tracks, so you know, you have, still have room for a ton of shit. So each drum gets its own track. Sometimes not. Sometimes you submix them. You know, maybe the drums are on six tracks. You yeah. know, whatever. Like a bass drum on one track, a snare on the other. Those are probably the most important. Toms on another track, and then room mics on another. You know. Wow. Yeah. And and it was rare that anyone played in real time in a way, like a band, like like. No, no. I think bands. You know, the the thing with technology for me is like, it's, as technology advanced. Music musicianship declined. Like back then, when you had to record on analog, people really fucking played. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like today. All at the same time, ever? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how people. You know, I, I mean, a lot of times. You know, there's no absolutes. Obviously, yeah. you would you could do either way. Right. But you know, I, I experienced a lot of uh, a, a lot of bands playing. Like um, I'm thinking of what records. Twisted Sister. They all played live. Yeah. Um, the Cindy record. No, it was more layers because right. they were still like a lot of times they were still writing the songs in the studio, which was kind of fun. Yeah, it seems uh, like that happens a lot. It still happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. and it, sometimes it could happen to the detriment of the song, but like those guys knew what they were. You know, those and guys also were I pros. think like you know once pop music redefined itself, like it seemed like layers and and this sort of like heightened production is is what it became about for a while. There, it wasn't really about. You know the performance of the of the musicians is right. It was, it was almost like production took precedent right. 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 over you know the music in a way. So like so you worked like I'm I'm just looking at because you've been involved with so many things, but you did you did a few Alice Cooper things right, and but that was later right. Yeah, that was um in the '90s. That was the last temptation of Alice uh, of Alice Cooper. Um, it was more like in maybe his later metal phase. Not even metal. I shouldn't even say that. It was just like a later phase. And it seems like you really came into your own with the uh, with the with the. I, I guess it was a little pre alt rock, but it was like those bands, yeah, like uh, Dinosaur Junior, The Breeders, yeah. Buffalo Tom, Sonic Youth, uh, the guys that like you know that I was listening to in college. That was that was a whole new thing. I loved Buffalo Tom. Yeah, I yeah, loved yeah, that guy, yeah, Janowitz yeah. and that. They, yeah, they me sounded too. great. Yeah, like I don't know why the fuck they weren't huge. You know, I, I have like I live in Jersey City and I have. So many of my buddies who are like younger than me are just so into them, and yeah. they just now, yeah, oh yeah, they're like huge fans. Like they are totally. When one of them found out I had produced Sleepy Eyed, he best friends for life. He loves me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a bartender, which is great. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a rough game, man. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like where you are behind the board, that's one thing. But these guys that have their life on the line, yeah. it's like it can get kind of sad. Huh? And it's and it's random. You know, it's not like no. If ever, if if it wasn't random, everybody would be making hit records. You right. can't. Who the hell knows right. why? You don't know. No, something yeah, no. happens. That's why it's funny. You do all these records in a row, and like a perfect example. You know, like I, it was great when Smoke Ring, the Kurt record. 
like did, yeah did well i mean it was like it seemed like it was the right record at the right moment and he's it, your guy right i mean i love him i mean i've done the but last two records with him produced it and did yeah, everything yeah because that's a very specific sound he has yeah well i mean that's i don't really my, my thing is more like not i i don't i don't necessarily bring the sound i i make the sound better right you know what i mean i right. make it more like big and you know, just better and, and more like um, facilitator with him. But so, like, as a producer and as an engineer, you don't necessarily have a style? I mean, I have a style, yeah. you know what I mean? But I, what defines that? Well, I guess how I record things and yeah. how I mix things and where I put things. Like, I'm a very I'm a very big left-right guy. I like things on the left and different things on the right. Yeah. And some people hate that. People like, get annoyed at me, you know. They go, <laughs> I had one guy say to me, you know, I go into a fucking store and the right speaker doesn't work and I can't hear that other guitar. And I'm like, yeah. well, don't go in that fucking store. I mean, you know, it's like, I got to make the records, like, to be cool. <laughs> yeah. That's why they made stereo. <laughs> so, um, you, you know, what do you think of mono? I mean, I like mono too. I think mono as an effect is really good. I, I sometimes you do the drums on one side. That's really cool, you know. Yeah. I, I'm, what is mono? What, why do people like mono mixes more than stereo mixes? Because they're not stereo. You know, it's like they got something different. I think. But is there know? a difference in sound? Well, everything's in the middle. Right. So yeah, it's it's just a different way of things mix. But I mean. The Beatles are a perfect example. You know, when they did those early records, they came out in mono, and then when stereo started becoming a fad, yeah, they went back to remix the records in stereo, but they didn't give a shit about it so much because it was like a fad. Right. So they, there wasn't as much attention. Um, but as stereo became more of a thing, I mean, people really got into the fact that you can place things everywhere. Sure. It was just, it was just a cool thing. Um, so I think what people like now when they go back to mono is the oddity of how di different it is. Right. Um, I don't, you know, I won't qualify it being better or worse. I don't, you know, who cares? It's yeah. just different. Yeah. But um, but it, that's what it is. It's different. But, you know, as an engineer and as a producer, you got to be pre pretty open-minded. I mean, like, yeah, uh, I mean, do you, I mean, what are fights that could happen? You know, where, I mean, is there territory, you know, within that, that, that environment yeah i'll give you a i'll give you a specific example with a band you really like oh. buffalo tom okay so they did the red letter record yeah they felt like maybe they had spent more time on it than they liked and it wasn't live enough so they hired me to do sleepy eyed and the caveat they was, blamed the producer for that they didn't necessarily blame them but they wanted to do the next record in a different direction okay you know it wasn't like you know fuck those guys it was more like you know we did this record we want to try something different yeah we want to make it whole live record right so we set up the band at our old church in woodstock and all live pa and doing vocals live so you bring a truck up there no no it's a studio it's okay. an old church with a control room okay but literally it's called dreamland it's a wonderful place um that's my plug the um, is maybe, it your place? No, no, but I may get free studio time down the road because of it. <laughs> um, but um, but the point is, they're set up all live, like everything. It's like a show, and we record the songs, and you know, a couple of the songs I feel like Bill can sing better. Yeah, and the fight is that he wants to keep them live, but I think he can sing them better. So I really want him to sing better and that's one of the the battles you yeah. know and i got to get him to sing it better because i know he can and you're producing that record yeah, so I, you have a little juice well, the, like, the, as an engineer you can't really like well, yeah i guess if you annoy someone enough maybe you can still get him to try it again but, but yeah as a producer but my thing is as a producer it's my responsibility right that the record when the record comes out you know um i don't know if tangerine has a shitty vocal on it you yeah. know and i hear it every time i'm gonna be fucking <laughs> miserable like i didn't do my job 
So, so that that's a perfect example. And we met in the middle, you yeah. know, a yeah. lot of times. But if I really felt like I needed something, I really just had to get it, you know. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you could even say things like, "Just try it again, and if it's not as good, we won't use it." You right. Know, just to get them to do it. Sure. You know sure, what I mean? And sure. then you could just then you can have the next fight of using it or not. Now, when you work with somebody like the breeders, like what is like you know what's that like? Because that's a pretty chaotic bunch, right? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> like I mean, how much chaos do you have to manage as an engineer or a producer to to kind of, you know? I, th I think Jay managed that pretty well. He produced it. Well, he did the single. Yeah. Um, I guess when I went on to do what ended up being the amps, where that was started as a breeder's record, I was kind of alone in that. But um, yeah, it was chaotic. I mean, she's a trip. Yeah. You know, I think she hates me at this point because I quit. I quit a record because I just couldn't. You know, I couldn't get her to folk, you know. Yeah. And she just... Wait, do, what was that fight? <laughs> uh, we got to make a record. Stop You're doing, talking about stop Kim? Doing, yeah. Stop, stop. stop doing what? <laughs> Everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but I'm serious. I'm not, you know, it was like, and I, trust me, I went in to Last Splash when I heard that record. I fell in love with them and I fell in love with her. It's a hell I, of a production. Who did the, who produced that? Uh, Mark, Mark Good, Goodall or some English, an and English And that's sonically weird. I mean, yeah, well, like they, they are sonically weird. Yeah. I mean, she plays the acoustic guitar through an amp and it has its own sound. Yeah, and they yeah, do yeah. all the effects on the vocals. I mean, listen, I, I'm, you know, sometimes you just can't, that's just, it goes down. You know, you can't fix it. You know, well, she's got to fix it herself. And, you know, I had to, I literally had to quit because I was like, you know, I can't, you're not, this is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. I'm not going to be a part of this. Right. You know, I just can't. Be dragged down with it. You know, it's yeah, just like babysitting. Just, it's worse than babysitting. It's like, you know, like a cellmate, you know, like a prison guard or something. It's not like babysitting will be easy. You fucking put the kid to bed and like... This kid doesn't want to go to yeah, sleep. I have two kids. I can fucking handle the kids. <laughs> yeah. So like when you when you turn down something like that, you're looking down the line at like, well, we got to put a whole record together. That's going to be months of my life. And I, what do yeah. I need this for? Well, I'm looking like it can't be done. I can't do it. I mean, yeah. she's, it's going to, and or if we it's done, it might be terrible. And I don't want to be part of a terrible record. You right. know what I mean? I just, right. you know. Yeah. Who were some of the other big ones? Oh, the drive-by truckers you did right. in the Dirty South, yeah. which is like a fucking masterpiece. It's a, what a great record, right there. I mean, that was. But you, they're so different. I mean, it's interesting as an engineer and a producer. I yeah. mean, you, you know, you've got to just sort of like you've got to wrap your brain around the sound of these guys. Yeah. And and what they want because they're yeah. so vastly different. Yeah. yeah like yeah, just yeah. going from Mascus to drive-by truckers. Yeah. And you just what'd you do on the Dirty South? Well, I mixed the Dirty South and the Blessing and a Curse. I, so they were back to back. Yeah. They they flew me down to uh, Athens to mix both those records. On whose recommendation? Um. There's, they were on East West at that point, mm -hmm. and there is a wonderful guy who lives here, and still, I'm sorry, New West. Mm -hmm. Burr. Um, anyway, his name is Peter Jesperson. Mm -hmm. Wonderful guy. He was kind of their A&R guy, and I think you know he suggested they might want to bring a new guy in um, uh, to to you know maybe a, an outside guy to maybe give it a different sound a little bit, you know, just a fresh perspective maybe. And did you did you provide that? Um, I think those records sound really good. I don't, you but know, like when they say that, like a like a second, like what what gets stuck in the mud when that suggestion is made? When when someone says, you know, fresh set of ears or or like you know a different sort of sound, what like what drives that decision? Maybe you know, maybe they go back and listen to the previous records and feel like they can sound bigger or right. more high five. You know, it's it all depends. Or maybe the vocals they don't like the vocals are placed. You know how treated, you know mixing is. I mean, I won't say mixing is the ultimate 
part of making a record, but you know, certainly mixing could make or break your record. I, um, I, I, you know, like I did, I just did the latest phosphorescent or the last phosphorescent record, and I know that record sounds really, really good. And I know that it got like a really cool sync for Spider Man Three for like a major scene, yeah. uh, the so- song for Zula, which is a beautiful song. And I think, you know, at a certain point, if your record sa- doesn't sound good, you don't get that kind of stuff, for example. Right. You know what I mean? That never gets in the movie if it doesn't sound good. But there's no, much. like, magical menu of, like, let's of what makes something sound good. It's all relative to an artist or to what's yeah. going on and well, what their strengths are. I guess so, yeah. But, I mean, I feel like there's... Uh, I come in and provide a certain thing where I make it sound better than the roughs. I make it sound bigger, and I make it people, like, really... How do you do it. that? I just have, you know, I use certain gear, and I just have a certain ear. It's the way I hear things. It's not like... What's I don't, your signature? I mean, I like some bus compression. I um, I like using a lot of analog. Like, I use a lot of pedals, yeah. like, to, to make effects. You know, yeah, I don't yeah. use all digital. Yeah. And I, I keep things kind of warmer and... I don't know, like just bigger sounding. I, I, and I like going to what mixing What was the compression the thing you said? It's um, it's like, you know, when you used to listen to FM radio and it had compression on it. Yeah, and yeah. that's why every song would sound the same level. Yeah. I, it's a similar thing that a lot of people do. And it's, it's, I think it comes from more of an English style. Yeah. Where you have a stereo compressor on the whole song. Not drastic, but uh-huh. enough to just tighten up and make uh-huh. more, more musical. Uh-huh. Um, and I do. I learned that from my uh, Bill Whitman mentor because yeah. I, when I assisted for him, this certain compressor called a Compex was on. We listened through it every day. Yeah. And when I started engineering and he wasn't there, I would work on records and go like, "Ah, oh, it sounds weird." And I was like, "Oh, I'm missing a Compex." So I went out and bought one of those. And yeah. Like I've had it on. I've listened through that in the studio. I, you know, for like thirty fucking years. I mean, I just love that thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just the way you balance things and where you put the snare and how you EQ. You know, it's just everybody does have their style. It's subtle maybe, but, I mean, it is a style. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why the Kurt records sound like they do. You know, I I kind of, at the risk of being too lofty, you know, I kind of like, I would kind of like the record I work on with whatever artist to be an improvement on the previous record. Right. And I feel like if I'm not doing that, it's not really... I'm not doing my job. Right. So, um, and when you hear badly produced records, what's you, the most uh, general, what, what's the most um, well, common complaint? No, I, I, well, I, I, there are two things. If I hear uh, some records, I, I don't like the way they're produced, but I love the band or I love the music, and I'm like, well, fuck it, that's fine. The music is really cool. I do find that these days people really like saturating sound because of digital. Yeah. Making it so that it's so loud, it's like it hurts. Yeah. And they, they call it like ear fatigue. And, yeah. You know, there was that whole thing about the level wars a couple of years ago with the Metallica. Yeah. Where the record was so hot and they brought it to the mastering engineer and he couldn't do anything with it. It was just crushingly loud. And people complained and, you know, it was just like now that we have digital, people think louder is better. It's, it's this weird thing where instead of better being better, yeah, it's like louder is better. Why? Because it's louder, and it's like um, like tuning vocals. It's like, well, let's just put every note in tune, and it's like, why? Because then it's in tune, or let's put everything on the grid. The grid yeah. being like the beat. Yeah, let's move everything on the beat. Why? Because we can. Yeah, and it's like, well, then it's not fucking music anymore. Right. You know what I mean? So it's math. It's 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 science. Yeah. You know, and I think for a while because you could do it, people automatically did it. Uh, and I think now there's pullback. A lot of pullback. There's a lot of lo-fi stuff coming out. Right. There's a lot of messy and, stuff. And, and, and by the way, I will say I'm you know I'm not 
you know, I'm I'm guilty of it a little bit because I got I got into a phase where I tried to get people to tune vocals a little bit, and um, I mean, I couldn't do it with Kurt or Thurston or Farrar or Mascus or those guys would fucking kill me. You know, right. I couldn't. You couldn't touch that because they're they're obviously like singers. I mean, right. they they, and they just, all have unique voices. Yeah, and why like alter their style? But I did it for like a year, maybe on records, and I tried to get it done subtly. And then I just realized at one point, it's like, who gives a fuck? Yeah. Like it's just a waste of time. Like you know what? I'll punch a word in three or four times to get the guy to sing it in tune. Right. You know, yeah. just do it. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you work with Sonic Youth and Thurston solo. Yeah. Um, Sonic Youth. Um, Rather, rather ripped was 2005, and I um, it was the kind of thing you're doing the Dino records for so long, and they were all friends. I'd met a bunch of those guys, yeah, and I always was like, you know, when am I going to get a chance to do a Sonic? Yeah. You know, hey, what about me? Yeah, yeah. Hey, how about this guy? <laughs> and eventually, it fucking happened. You know, I think uh, I did a record with Jay, a side project called Witch, who Mascus, or yeah, yeah, and uh, Thurston was really into it, yeah, and. Thurston was really into it, and then I think Jay at one point said, "Well, why don't you just use the witch guy? Use use John," and he was like, "Yeah, okay." I mean, to produce Sonic Youth must have been sort of a task. Um, it was more. Well, you know, they've made like twenty three records. I mean, they definitely don't need me to help them. You know what I mean? Right. They, I was more like, it was more like tasking and and making it sound good, but also making sure. Like we did all the Kim vocals and, you know, got the good performances from her and, and you know, like Thurston and, you know, I, I, it was more like just management. And, yeah. and, and, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And, you know, on a certain level, granted, now I just mixed the Damascus records. So there's not even that. But at a certain point with Dino, it's like, you know, you don't really say to them, ah, that song needs a chorus. You know, right. He'll hit you in the head with his guitar. It's like just that it's not necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing with like Thurston. They, those guys make the kind of records they want to make, right? And you got to let them make it, and then you just got to be there to make it sound good and make it go quick and make them comfortable and make sure like when Thurston picks up his fucking guitar and is ready to rock out a take, it's ready to go, right? So it was it was a lot of that, but it was super fucking awesome. I mean they they were so into tracking and like having it be like we want it to sound like it's going to sound live, yeah. Because when we play it live, we don't want to be missing anything, right? And, so, ra and rather ripped had four of them, but on the Eternal, Kim went to guitar, and the dude um, Mark from Pavement played bass. So that was even more fun because it was more of a sonic yeah. wall. So when when you look back on everything you've done, I mean, like there's definitely like bands that you helped define their sound. Like I guess I would say with with Kurt Vile, you I mean you were there for big records, and right. and you have a partnership with him, a creative partnership right. on some level, right? Right. Do you right. feel like you you were a big part of that when you think about the producing, or do um, you sort of let that be just you know? Well, that's a it's my job to service the artist. Yeah, I think I think it's for me it's more important that I'm just making the records as good as I can, and um, I try not to get too much like that because it really is about them. You know, without them, I'm nothing. Right, but there are egocentric oh, producers. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, I got you. Yeah, I, I can't. I've never been that guy, so I've been. I I, I skew to the other side. Of right, like, right. You know, thank you for letting me make your record. <laughs> <laughs> not like uh, like I define that sound. Right, right. That's right. A, that's the uh, that's my sound. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once again, I I do admit there is a there is a maybe a common thread with the records I work on. But for for example, like when you listen to Todd Rundgren productions, yeah, they sound like Todd Rundgren records. Right. You know what I mean? They yeah. have a fucking stamp that is like Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, whether it's you know XTC or or whoever. Are you jealous of that? No, I think I mean I'm I you know I'm 
happy to be making records I like. I mean, right. I can't. I definitely do not worry about other guys. I mean, but I mean, but what 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 separates you from him in that way? Um, maybe because he's like a super artist, and it just it, that's his thing. It's maybe it's about his ego where it's got to be his. He's making his record, right? You know, I'm totally. But not, he brings a sound to it. It's like if somebody's going to hire somebody, they're like, we need we need Butch Vig on this. Right, because right. he did that thing. Right, right. So you're, are you necessarily, you know, in that pool? Like, you know, aside from being a good guy to work with and, and Jay, well, recommend, you know what I mean? I mean, it's different. You know, Butch did do Nevermind and, and you know. That's smash. one of those records where I got it on vinyl. It's, yeah. it's impossible to listen to. It's like, it's so loud. Right, it's, right. It's, everything's right. pushed way right. forward. It doesn't matter right. what format. Yeah, it's, it's, a great, it's a great sounding record. Yeah. And it's an iconic record. So. Yeah. You know, the bottom line is, I, it's like good for him. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't really, if I worried about everybody else making records and, you know, like my record, you know what I mean? I would drive myself fucking nuts. But is it, I guess also there must be that element of like, if the producer sort of lucks into, uh, in a way, right. uh, being the producer on a record that becomes huge, right. then all of a sudden the pressure's on him to probably define his sound. Like, yeah, that's what right. I do. I, right. You know, that I can right. bring that to any right. situation. Right. Right, yeah. but I mean, for Butch as an example is just fucking awesome. Yeah. So it's like I, you know, it's like yeah. I can't, you know, like George Martin is fucking yeah. awesome. I mean, yeah. what am I, you know, I'm not gonna lay awake at night wondering how come I'm not as popular as he is. Fuck that, you know. <laughs> as, long, as long as I can go to work the next day and, and work on a cool record, <laughs> right, and make some people happy, yeah, uh, and do well. And, and once again, the whole doing well thing we talked about it before. It's really kind of random. I yeah. mean, I'm super fucking psyched that the Kurt records did well. I'm super psyched that the phosphorescent record is doing well and the Manchester record. So it's like, it's good, you know, that's great. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, on the other hand, I've worked on records where I really felt great about them and it's like, Pfft. yeah. And it's, yeah, it's a like fucking, what? well, I mean, like, well, you know, you're not throwing anyone under the bus. I mean, a record's a record, you know? I mean, okay. Here, here, I'll give you a perfect example. I've done the last two symbols eat guitar records. Yeah. The previous one, I fucking thought it was great. Yeah. And Pitchfork gave it like a 4.2 and totally torpedoed it and they had other problems and it didn't do well, which sucked. And I felt bad for those kids because they really put their heart into it. Fast forward another two years, we make this new record and all of a sudden Pitchfork loves it and the press is great and they're on tour opening up for either Bob Mould or brand new and millions of people have seen them. People love them. Um, so more power to them. They hung in. They hung in. Yeah. But but the, the the bottom line, it was the last, the previous record was a fucking bummer. Right. You know, because it was really great. And you can't explain it. No. But I mean, what you know. Well, yeah, and sometimes critics suck. Well, Pitchfork, I love them because, you know, if they give you the best new music, it's great for the record. But they can really fucking hurt you too. And you did Jagger's solo record? Well, I, we did one song. Um, oh. Back in the early... In the beginning of MTV ish yeah. type times, you know, like they did a special version of um, of that song, and um, and it was like a digital video. It was like a groundbreaking video. Yeah. Um, and we re I I we recorded it and mixed it in like in one day. And yeah. he and he was there. It was pretty amazing. Like it's it pretty it, like you got to have some sort of like you know like oh, that chills. like awe. Dude, yeah. Fucking crazy. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is the band's playing in the studio. Yeah. And he's singing into a mic and when he's singing if you solo the mic you only hear his voice right like he's so loud and he projects so loud and when he stops all of a sudden the mic is full of drums yeah like right that's how powerful he sang yeah and my other favorite moment was when he came in to listen to the playback he'd sit on the console with his arms like, like, like Mick Jagger yeah and yeah. be like oh yeah yeah and I was just, we fucking all were shitting bricks. It was just like, <laughs> holy shit, it's really fucking Mick Jagger. 
yeah. And you did the Thermals record. Yeah. I like those guys. Dude, that was a trip. We did that record. You know, that record's all about the end of the world, right? Yeah. We did that record. Desperate Ground? Yeah. Yeah. We did that record. The last day of the record is right before Hurricane Sandy. The uh-huh. studio got totally destroyed uh-huh. the next day. Wow. We ended, the, we ended three, two days early because we knew the hurricane was coming. They were staying at the studio, and I basically told them Sunday. The hurricane hit Monday night. I told them on Sunday, I think you guys should come back to my house. Why? This might not be so good here. Yeah. You know, I said it could be really okay or it could be really terrible. Yeah. And sure enough, the, the studio took seven feet of water. Wow. We didn't have power for like three days. They stayed with us. We, it was really amazing. But the backdrop around that record and actually the apocalypse yeah, have, kind of happening yeah, yeah. was fucked up. Well, oh, the whole steady shit. I talked to yeah. Craig Finn. I know. Yeah. They, and you did that big record. Well, we did, you know, I did the two in a row that kind of, um, you know, made them kind of boys and girls in america stay positive i mean yeah and boy but boys and girls was another one of those records to talk about a record that was right for the time like when that came out that was it was a great for them i mean yeah. it really they went from selling i don't know ten thousand records to like 70 you know and yeah. they, they went from playing little clubs to like bigger venues and yeah it was a really great it was just fun. It was a fun time for them. And but it's interesting that the 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 sort of what determines whether something's a success now is so yeah. much different than it yeah. used to be. Yeah, I mean it's unbelievable. Yeah, like you know everybody used to talk millions of records, and now yeah. like seventy thousand. Good for right. them. Yeah. They, you know they found their audience. Yeah. Well, also the, the one thing I will say that I notice is people now are not spending a hundred thousand dollars making a record. Right. So if you sell fifty thousand records, but you spend twenty thousand, you win. You, you're making some money. Yeah, and which you get I to make is, another record. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. you get the tour. Yeah, and then if you are playing like you know Webster Hall or Terminal Five in New York, yeah, um, you know you're doing good. Exactly. You know? So and then if you get a sink or two, you got you know it's all it's it's a different ball game for sure. Well, um, all right, man, it was great talking to you. You too. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hell yeah, man. Thanks for coming. Do that. Did we learn? Go listen to some of those records with the new ears. John Agnello, good guy, talented guy. Go to WTFPod.com, check the calendar. Uh, JustCoffee.coop has done some uh, some relabeling. Go pick up the WTF blend of that. Everything, leave a note, leave a comment. I don't know, cut, check for the tour dates though, man. Come into your town, New Orleans, Asheville, North Carolina, Madison, Wisconsin, Atlanta, Seattle, San Francisco, Charleston. Detroit, outside Detroit, Toronto, Vancouver, WTFPod.com slash calendar. All right?